Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As believers, often at the root of our fears and uncertainty is God's forgetfulness. Not that God is forgetful, but that our own forgetting, our own not taking into account the depths, into the depths of our minds and our souls, the promises of the gospel. Allowing ourselves to be overwhelmed is forgetting that he has promised and what he has promised to supply and to empower us. Our job is to follow him by faith every day that we live. We ought not to wait and be stymied for the provision before we move forward until God, so we don't worry about what God's going to do next and how he will meet our needs. We move forward with the certainty that he is with us. He is for us and he is in us. This God of awesome power will grant us the power to do what is needed. This is his sure and reliable covenant promises to us. But what kind of power does this one to whom we've entrusted our life really have? Let me refer to you one of the strangest verses of all scripture. It's the one actually printed in your bulletin there from uh, Exodus chapter 11. It paints a dramatic picture of the awe-inspiring power of God. God is delivering his people, Israel, from their captivity in Egypt. God tells Moses, the leader of Israel, that all the firstborn of Israel are going to die from the firstborn king uh, of, of Pharaoh to the, even the firstborn of all the livestock in their land. God says, and this is what the verse is there, it's printed, verse 7, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. What kind of power does God have? He has the power to silence a dog. Every dog in Egypt not only the power to silence that dog, but to distinguish. He gave the dogs the power to distinguish between who they would growl at, between the Egyptians or the Israelites. The dogs will wail against the Egyptians and be silent in the presence of the Israelites. All because there is a God who rules all things, with even the power to direct individual animals to do what he wants them to do. Yes, our God has awesome power. He has distinguishing power. He knows who his people are, he knows where they are, he knows what they need, and he knows when they need it. He knows what needs to be done and what needs to be controlled for his will to be carried out. So what do we have to fear or to be timid about knowing that God gives the power which his people need? This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Please kneel where you are if you're willing. Confessions and confessionalism. We all understand, and I'm sure we've been taught, that the creeds that we confess each Lord's Day are subordinate authorities. In other words, they are under the authority of the Word of God. 
But there are those, and, and I'll be speaking a little bit about this kind of uh, thinking later, that believe that creeds are to be eschewed as being something constructed by man or man-made. Okay, did man write creeds? Well, yes, men wrote creeds. Why did they write creeds? Well, it's usually in response to some heretical teaching that's come alongside and is in competition with the pure word of God. The Nicene Creed is one of those. I'm sure you understand the time that Constantine, the Edict of Milan, no longer will we persecute Christians, but there was this scuffle within the church as to who Jesus was. And so Constantine, for uh, good motives or ill, we don't know, said, you guys need to get this together and figure it out because I won't have you fighting amongst yourself. And for a while, the heretics were in the ascendancy. Those that said that there was a time where Jesus was not, led by Arius, who, by the way, was a very good musician, so you need to watch musicians, all right? (laughs) And there was one man, Athanasius, who had had all kinds of nicknames, but one of the things they, they said about him was it was Athanasius Contramundum, against the world, because he, for a while, seemed like he and he alone was standing against this, this Arian heresy that held Jesus to be a great, wonderful, the best created thing, which is not biblical orthodoxy. The other thing I want to keep in mind, too, is that no one is creedless. Even the Church of the Brethren folk who say we have no creed but Christ, what did they just do? They just said a creed. Pagans have a creed. Everybody has a worldview, a lens by which they view reality. It's inescapable. So what I want to leave this part of the service with is that when we confess the Nicene Creed, we're, we're saying this is who we believe God is. He's our Father. This is who we believe Jesus is, not just a prophet or a Razul like the Muslims say, but truly God of God, light of light. This is who the Spirit is. And they, to, they together, the Father and the Son, sends the Spirit. All of these things are not intended to be enclosed within this lovely little wedding chapel. It's meant to be taken out confessed, lived as if it's true, confess it as if it's true, live your life in such a way that this creed means something. Have you ever heard the, uh, the expression, uh, oh, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual? In fact, I think the governor of the state of Washington uh, made some kind of statement to that effect not too long ago, describing his state, or at least the Tacoma area. Oh, it's not very religious, but very spiritual. Or what about this one? Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It sounds nice. There's other sayings that Christians use. Uh, especially, you know, I'll be honest, I used to be a charismatic, and that was a while back. I'm not anymore. But you would hear these expressions that, now that I've been in the Reformed camp for quite a while, it's not even part of my vocabulary. I don't even recognize it. What about this pressing into the heart of Jesus? Have you ever heard that one? Have you ever heard a Presbyterian say that? Probably not. I doubt that you hear many Baptists say it either. Well, everyone has a sense of the spiritual and as we just heard in the, in the New Testament reading, we're not to be taken captive or influenced by philosophies that don't arise from the text of Scripture. So if you would, turn to Colossians 2, if you're not already there. 
And my purpose this morning is not to do a uh, verse-by-verse exposition of this passage, but to utilize this passage when I think the, the issue behind what Paul is writing about becomes clear, especially as you read the whole book. When I first became a Christian, this was one of my very absolute favorite books because it was very concise, uh, very similar to Ephesians, kind of a similar structure. First half, doctrinal. Second half, application. It's very practical. And it was only four chapters long. I could read it in one setting and keep on going. So, And we've already read verses 1 through 8, so let me pick it up in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, or of the flesh. Your translation might have the flesh in there. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of man, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore... Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use, because they're based on human commands and traditions. Such teachings indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. It's God's perfect word. Today's study, I hope, will shed some light on the idea of spirituality and what it means to be spiritual, especially for those of us who have been united to Christ by faith. And I'm going to be borrowing from my favorite theologian, I'll give you a clue. He died in 84 and used to wear knickers. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? Anyone? Amen. We can amen Francis Schaeffer. He's a good man. Yeah. People have this sense of the spiritual. As I said before, people like to talk about spirituality in amorphous, vague terms, right? And they try to satisfy their longing by... Everything other than the cross of Christ. We just heard that it's the cross that's central to everything. And yet if you're a rebel sinner against God, your nature has not yet been changed by God's free grace. Then you're going to be seeking for it elsewhere. And this is also true. This little town of Colossae, which was about 100 miles east of Ephesus, 
And as you can probably pick up from the text, Paul had never actually visited this city. But the letter he writes is so striking and significant. See, there's nothing wrong with desiring to experience something of God. That's not in and of itself an illegitimate thing to be grasping for. To know God, even even to know God more deeply, or to have a relationship with your creator and to understand that to be the most central, significant, and real thing in your life. In fact, Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, what's what's the first question? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That sounds like the Westminster Divines had an idea of what it means to be a Christian, to glorify God with everything and enjoy him. That sounds... That sounds very positive, doesn't it? That almost sounds spiritual. To, to enjoy God. I enjoy God. What does this mean, though? And how do we know? Back in the first century, usually these people were trying to get their spiritual batteries charged by either going back to the old Jewish rituals. We can see that in the book of Galatians, especially in Hebrews, but even in this area of Turkey, where there would be Jewish teachers, almost like clockwork, about three to four months after a church had been planted, here they come, and if you really want to be spiritual, you guys have something you need to do. And then there's all these other things that you need to do too, so that you really, really are a Christian. You're not just a Gentile, right? We all know he was talking about circumcision, and the mention of of new moons and Sabbaths and what you eat and drink, those all have a relation to the kind of Jewish outward uh, temple ritual that they would have still been doing at this time. There was also this very early proto-Gnostic thinking that was creeping into the church. This is probably one of the most dangerous heresies that the church faced, at least for 300 years. It was basically the idea that, um, uh, that matter and physicality are in themselves evil and wicked, and the really good upper story stuff, you can upper story, that's a little Shaferian language there, is the, the non-physical. It's almost platonic, where the forms are. You know, it's always out there somewhere. There, there's an old rock band called The Perfect Circle. Well, it's kind of a joke, because you know, The Perfect Circle doesn't exist here on Earth. It's always out there somewhere. So these two different factions were competing for the attention and the allegiance of the church that was here in, in uh, Colossae. Now, usually... In the church, extra spirituality or true spirituality is sought after in three ways. The first one would be through the senses. That makes sense. Senses. And sometimes this would, this would take the place of some of the rituals that the Gnostics would be into. These are very early Gnostics. It wasn't full-blown yet. Or the Jewish stuff. But today, what does it look like when people want to experience the spiritual through the senses or through some kind of recharging generally. Well, I I already confessed I used to be a charismatic. In those days, it would be this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit where you'd speak in tongues and you'd have this extra experience, right? You've You've got Passover down, right? Your sins have been forgiven. Wonderful. Good for you. But God has this little extra thing. It's called the baptism. Have you heard about this? You know, it was all the... You'd meet someone and, and spend a little time. I used to be in a Christian rock band, and I'd meet all these different Christians from all different backgrounds, and I'd come back to church, and 
oh, we had a great time. The pastor and his wife had us over for dinner. Da, da, da. Oh, that's great. Um, were they spirit-filled? Well, that was code for were they one of us, like tongue-speaking charismatic. And I, in my, even, even when I still spoke in tongues as a practice, I had this little rebellious streak. And wanting to be technical and using biblical categories, I would think to myself, are they spirit-filled? Well, I'll move in with them for a couple months, and I'll, I'll let you know later, you know, fruit of the Spirit type of thing. Uh, sometimes it takes the place through you know, signs and wonders, or even revivalistic meetings, you know, where, pe- where people... The other, the other part of my upbringing was just basic Midwestern evangelicalism, where almost, again, like clockwork, every six weeks, they would have a time where... And in fact, I don't even see an altar up here, nor do I see boxes of Kleenex. So in my early thinking, this would have meant, well, they're not really spiritual. They don't have those altar times where people come up and cry and confess that they've been gossiping about their neighbor, you know, which seemed, again, about every six weeks, it was cyclical. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what it corresponded to. but So number one, people seek spirituality through the senses. Now, the second way people tend to think about spirituality in the church is probably the thing that we're more guilty of, and that's deep theology. Heavy reading. How many volumes of, well, name the theologian. Do you, do you have the institutes on your shelf at home? You know, it's kind of a, well, I've read Calvin. He's very pastoral. That's good. You need to read this stuff. But sometimes that takes the place of true spirituality when you're really looking for, I just want more and more of that. Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't seek knowledge and wisdom and don't seek to expand your horizons and know more about God. But um, sometimes it it ends up in conjecture, speculation. I think Paul was warning the, uh, the early church and Timothy and Titus about people who wrangle about words and things like that. So that's another way. The third way is usually involves a denial of the inherent goodness of creation. It's a view of spirituality that is very much rooted in, well, it's this Neoplatonic Gnostic. This, this podium is, is, is just a tool. It's, it's not good in and of itself. It's, you know, it's destined for the fires of you know, destruction anyway. In fact, that would be everything, maybe except for your physical body, is, is ultimately destined. That's kind of where we get this two-kingdom thinking, where there's a neutral realm and a spiritual realm and that kind of stuff. So, in my early days, if someone was concerned about whether someone was really a Christian or really spiritual, there was a question you would ask, and that would be, have you had a born-again experience? So instead of, instead of really relying upon the promises of God to his people, you ended up turning that around on the person themselves, which... After a while, you begin to quit. I don't. I'm not really sure if I've actually had a legitimate born again experience. So it's a, a looking for either it's a confirmation or more experience, and it kind of piles up after a while. And Francis Schaeffer, in one of his one of his books called True Spirituality, highly recommend it. He did he did mention this idea of as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Usually your thinking is what starts down this path where you're going to get off the road a little bit. He said the inward area is the first place of loss 
of true spirituality. The outward is just the result. And as he thinks within his, himself, so is he. <clears throat> and I don't want to deny that there are legitimate, real, God-birthed spiritual experiences that his people can have. That's not my point. But Paul gives us a very real warning in Colossians 2. And he writes that, that no one may deceive you through fine-sounding arguments. And those cautions that we read in verses 6 through, through 10 are so critical. It says, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live, with, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. There's a theme in Paul where he talks about the, the sound pattern, the sound words, sound doctrine. And here he makes references to it as you were taught. In other words, don't go out there looking for more of Jesus or more of something when really it's always found in Christ as you were taught. Just like the Galatians, if anyone brings you a gospel other than the one that you received, he's accursed because it doesn't conform with God's word. He goes on, overflowing with thankfulness, gratitude, that's true spirituality. And again, in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Takes you captive. Think about that. To be enslaved, I think some translations actually use enslaved, to be enslaved by philosophy. Folks, there are many millions of people on the globe today who are enslaved by false thinking, bad philosophy, their worldview. You can give them all the evidence in the world and they're still going to walk away unbelieving. Why? Because evidence has to be interpreted and they interpret it by their philosophy. It's called a presupposition. It's an assumption. And he's warning people in the church, don't be taken captive by this stuff. It depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world. That's that negative connotation of the world as a, as a system opposed to God. Rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And you, believer, have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So he's warning them against these two different poles, early Platonic thinking, which, you know, when we say someone has a platonic relationship, it means it, it doesn't intersect. It's not like a husband and wife relationship. It's a friendship relationship. And this Jewish temptation to go back to the temple, back to the rituals. Now, Paul is so fully aware of the ensnaring properties of thinking like this, and it's packaged in fine-sounding arguments. Even believers can be temporarily deceived for a time. I mean... The, Westminster Standards talk about God allowing his people to be carried off sometimes for a season. It's not a permanent situation. But we're, we're being warned here to be careful about thinking wrongly about spirituality. And so this, this kind of teaching is a lie. It's devastating to people who have a genuine desire to grow in Christ. And one of the things it does for you know, the everyday, quote-unquote, mundane activities and vocations is it puts them down on this level of not really that important. In other words, the real important stuff is up here in the non-physical, spiritual realm, 
By the way, in the Bible, spiritual is not opposed to physical. It's opposed to sin and rebellion. True spirituality is that which is in conformity to Christ, not that which is physical. And picking up our, our passage in verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, again, the bad ethical sense of the world, why do you still submit to its rules? In other words, he's telling these Christians, you have been liberated, and now you're being tempted to be enslaved again to something that's not truly spiritual, that's not from God. So our genuine desire to grow in Christ and to experience God in all of his fullness, that's a good thing. But we'd never want to take the the cues from the pagans who want to define spirituality in some other way, which eventually makes your job and moms, what you do at home, not spiritual. There was a there was a book written by a couple of Francis Schaeffer's son-in-laws that changed, it rocked my world because it exposed a lot of this thinking and I'd fallen for some of it myself. It was called um, Being Human, The Nature of the Spiritual Experience. I think it's still in print. Somebody picked it up. Ronald McCauley and Jaron Bars, two of Schaeffer's son-in-laws. And in that book, they, they kept hammering the fact that the Bible never calls what we do in our non-Sunday life, let's say, the non-Lord's Day stuff, as non-spiritual. Again, when I was a kid, I thought Sunday morning, Sunday night, which I had to go to early because my parents were in choir, so I missed Disney. Who won, by the way, who won the Battle of the Alamo? I, I just don't know. I didn't get to finish that particular episode. Some of you know what I'm talking about, you older people. Um, and Wednesday night youth group, that was the spiritual stuff. The other stuff, eh, just keep your nose clean, you know. Try not to sin too brazenly, but it's not really spiritual, right? Is that right? Doesn't the Bible say whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus? Whatever you eat or drink, that sounds, wow, that sounds like stuff we do every day. Do you have dinner every day with your family? Usually try to, right? And the kind of thinking that sets those activities as being neutral at best and unspiritual at worst really gets in your head and messes with you until you won't think straight about what's really important to God. What I mean by that is that most of our acts of living, most of the things that we do daily, when we wake up, have coffee, go to work, eat lunch, come home, kick the cat if you're in a bad mood, don't kick the cat, hang out with the family and go to bed. All of that comes under the rubric of the all things that God works together for good that love God. That comes together under that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This physicality doesn't just play into this everyday stuff. If you think about what what Paul said on Mars Hill, when he talked about all men, God's requiring to repent and believe, and he's given evidence of this by what? By raising Jesus from the dead. Do you remember what the response of his audience was? Right away, Acts 17, Luke records for us. At this, some of them sneered. 
Come on. Bodies raising from the dead? What is this? The walking dead or some weird... No, 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 no. Physicality is bad. Everyone knows that. Who is this guy? And by the way, if you read the text, Paul didn't get asked to speak at Mars Hill because he was speaking in the worldview of the, his, his listeners. Uh-uh. He was bringing strange ideas. We'll hear you more. So if you're ever tempted to, you know, hold a punch where God's throwing it, as it were, don't. Don't do it. Speak the truth. It, it's, it'll either get you in big trouble or you'll get a talk at the Areopagus. One, one of the two, not both. And in the scriptures, physicality is spoken of in positive terms. In fact, in 1 John 4, 2 and 3, John says this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. One of these early Gnostic teachings was called docetism, or docetism, from the Latin word that means to just to appear. And they said, well, Jesus obviously couldn't have come in a physical body because physical is bad. So he only appeared to be in a physical body. That was why this was a dangerous heresy. And this parallel stuff we see pretty much all the time now. Um, there's a certain cable network that its call letters start with a T and then it ends with an N and there's a B in the middle. And they have men on there that hear from God directly. Did you know that? It's amazing. I don't know. How can we get in on this? You know, They actually have a direct pipeline to the creator of the universe. And then they tell the people over the airwaves what... That direct pipeline has, has given. It's amazing. It's this unmediated spirituality. I don't believe it for a second, but that's what they say. This is an example of this bad philosophy. Because, hey, yeah, we got the, the Bible, but you know, if I could just hear from God, wouldn't it wouldn't it be wonderful? There's an attempt there, too, to divide the lordship of Christ and his person from his word. It's a false dichotomy. By the way, there's another way that this works out in real life that's destructive, and it's basically emptying mainline denominations, along with a lot of other bad teaching. Have you ever heard anyone say, you know, I know what the Bible says about such and such, but God has gifted me in this area, and he's called me. How can I deny that call? What just happened? Maybe it's a young lady, feels called to the ministry, and somebody said, oh yeah, that, that stuff in First Timothy, that's just Paul being cultural, Paul being a chauvinist. You need to pay attention to that inner voice, which again is out here and amorphous. It can't be disproved and it can't be proved. It's purely subjective. But as we speak, this is some of what's going on at Calvin College in Grand Rapids with the ordination of women to the ministry. To me, it doesn't make any sense how you're going to leave the Bible, but this is a part of this philosophy where I'm going to go with the, with the existential voice rather than words on a paper. Besides, these were written by men, right? Men make mistakes, so you always have to call into question the text. And one more, one more, and I'll, I'll leave this part. Remember, love unites and doctrine divides. 
There. That ends every conversation, right? You know, I think, I think there should be division between those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. Love is always to be fenced in by God's covenant doctrine. And doctrine should always be presented in the motivation of love. You don't split the two off. It's like trying to separate the truth and the spirit. It, you don't do that. That's not how God thinks and that's not how we should think. So let me try to tie this together here. Um, I was told 30 minutes. I'm going to stick to that as closely as I can. Um, like I said earlier, the Bible doesn't divide our lives up into those kind of categories. Everything matters to God. Changing a baby's diaper matters to God. Let me, let me tell you a little anecdote. I'm not usually given to this, but I think it's appropriate. Back when we were charismatics, but we were thinking a lot and trying to think through things and, and being influenced by uh, the Bible. <laughs> and guys like Francis Schaeffer, you know, admittedly, um, you know, they would do, their, their liturgy would consist of a kind of a couple of announcements and then about 40 minutes of music, just solid no break, no hymnals either. It was all up on the screen. And, and by the end, everyone was kind of at this, uh, I don't know, with the critical mass where the Spirit really, really can move. We didn't even have a fog machine and the Holy Spirit moved. It was really cool. So we had little ones at that time. Hannah would have been, you know, 18 months, just a baby, sweet little mohawk of curl. And she needed her mother's attention. Need her diaper changed. So Heidi took her out, changed the diaper, brought her back in. Just at the moment where everyone had sat back down and the minister said, There, now don't you all feel more spiritual? <laughs> I, I love that because she thought to herself, Now wait a minute. I could really think of this in terms of, Wow, what did I miss? You know, I, something happened between the time I got up changed the diaper and came back or you rest in the fact that she was actually doing the spiritual thing for her at that time to change the diaper of a little girl. That was just as spiritual as whatever was happening within the big room without the fog machine, okay? The Bible doesn't divide our lives into neutral compartments. Do you know there's only two different kingdoms? There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. That's it. There's real life, which is what we live every day, under his lordship, under the authority of Jesus. And then there's those who try to live outside of that. There, there's covenant keeping and there's covenant breaking. There's in Christ and there's in Adam. And in Christ, we have all of the fullness and all of the inheritance that God promises to his adopted sons and daughters. You know, we don't want to try to stress a higher spirituality. You get young visitors in here. They've never read Rush Dooney. Do you know that? It's okay. You're going to, they're, they're going to be trained and taught, right? So let's, let's think about this positively. <clears throat> you can probably see the issues with Having people in a particular church where some have had this experience, a two-tier. Positively, God wants us to be united as a people of God and see all of our lives as being spiritual. 
Back to verses 2 and 3. He wants us to be encouraged in heart and united in love, not at cross purposes with each other, so that we may have the full riches of complete understanding. See, there's, there's an intimation there, complete understanding of what? Oh, of Christ, of him and his atoning work on the cross on behalf of all of his people. And namely, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it's so vital that we don't take our cues from the media. You know, right now, the, the, the worst thing you can do is to not be nice. It's like the, the cardinal sin of the media. And if you're not nice, well, it's because you were talking with a Christian and there's open season on us right now. That's, that's the way the, the pagans think. We don't think like that. We serve the king of kings. It's, I, I, it's like, I don't know what to tell you. You have no car, so you're going to drive it into a, drive mine into a tree. You ever hear the Doug Wilson thing? You want, to, you want to borrow my car. You have no worldview upon which to stand. But we have to be kind when we, when we respond like that. And God wants our worship in totality. Our heart, our mind, soul, and strength. Our work, our play. Man, the way you wash your wife in the word and, and, and treat her like Christ treats the church. Wives and how you submit to your husband joyfully and, and support him in what he does. These are all part of what true spirituality is. In fact, true spirituality will always bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's true spirituality being lived out in our lives. Schaefer said this about desires that we have. He says, desire becomes sin when it fails to include the love of God or man. Sounds like the love that we have for God will always spill over into our love of our fellow man, especially those within the body, but then outside the body of Christ as well. So first of all, be encouraged, know Christ. Second, God wants us to, quote, receive Christ as Lord and continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith. And overflowing with thankfulness. Gratitude and thankfulness are absolutely essential for true spirituality. Remember, Paul wrote, the, wrote to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not first receive? Anything you have now, your, your, your knowledge, your intake, whatever modicum of spirituality you have, that's by God's grace. What separates you from your, your unbelieving brother who grew up in the same house and is still rebelling? It's God's grace. It's one word. It's not because of something good in you and something bad in him. You were both bad. Everybody starts off in the same same place. And thirdly, God wants us to live in the fullness of our life. Now that that sounds almost Osteen-esque, you know, your best life now, that kind of thing. I don't have the teeth to say that, so I won't. But he said, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every authority and power. I, I loved it when in the congregational prayer, one of the brothers spoke specifically about things that are going on outside of these four walls. They didn't come under the heading of right proclamation or ordinances or discipline. It's, it's under all that. But we don't, 
We don't see a lot of churches doing that. And I want to commend you for that. Think in terms of your spirituality having an effect on the LMNOP movement, abortion, all the insanity that's going on. People are going to be looking to you for answers. Because the answers that are being given out there, are they don't ring true because they're not true. And when we talk about Jesus as Lord and all authority, you know, we're, we're in the CREC. We're generally post-millennial. We have this very, very confident, optimistic view of the Lordship of Christ. That is a good thing. Don't take that for granted. One of our other pastors, John Murphy, says, well, it's just baked into everything we do. This is in the air you breathe. Amen. That, my friends, is true spirituality. When you live your lives under his lordship, under his authority, whatever you eat, drink, say, work, play, do, all of that as an act of glory to God. I mentioned it earlier, just, just in passing, that what we do with our lives in, in the quote-unquote mundane parts of our lives, the, the not, the, as the pagans would want to say, the, well, whatever you do in your church, that's fine. Just don't bring it out here. Can't be done. Sorry. That would be impossible. That would mean I have to disobey God. This kind of uh, spirituality view, this worldview that says Jesus is Lord over my entertainment. He's Lord over my work. He's Lord over everything. It encompasses those all things. So if you want to know if you're really spiritual or not, it's not in the experiences that you have or in the fulfilling of certain regulations or even checking off that daily Bible reading, although that's a good practice to get into. It's good because it builds you up. But if you miss a day, don't kill yourself. It's evidence of loving God and your neighbor in humility, the fruit of the Spirit, let me end with this quote from, again, Francis Schaeffer. This is from his book, Art in the Bible. When a man comes under the blood of Christ, his whole capacity as a man is refashioned. His soul is saved, yes, but so are his mind and his body. True spirituality means the lordship of Christ over the total man. I pray this would be encouraging to you and that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you would do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our gracious Lord, indeed, we are so thankful that in your kingdom and in your view, there are no little people. And those who would vaunt themselves up with their supposed visions are actually unspiritual in your view. We thank you that we can come to you as our gracious king, as our father. And that we can worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. Lord, we thank you that through the atoning work of your precious son on the cross, the veil has been torn separated us from the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, the very presence of the true creator of the universe. God, we need your help to live as men and women of God. We need your grace daily. We need your provision and your sustaining work in our lives. 
Help us, Lord, not to keep this to ourselves, but to be bold in our witness, efficacious in our love, and gracious in our speech. And Lord, now please teach us to pray. Christ himself. We do not do this because we have not received him already, but rather we do this as part of our ongoing, lifelong, lifelong reception of Christ. Of course, when we first received Christ, we were coming in faith. We were ushered out of darkness and into the light. When we first came here to receive him, we were not coming here to receive him, for the, but we are not coming here to receive him for the first time. Anyone who has a thriving and an ongoing relationship, like in a healthy marriage between a husband and a wife, knows that there's a difference between that initial reception with the, with the other person and the need for the daily reception and meeting of that other person. Obviously, that relationship cannot continue to grow and thrive if it never began. But just as obviously, it cannot continue to grow and thrive if there's not an ongoing receptivity. The Bible teaches this explicitly. In fact, this is a part of the sermon today. We are to walk in Christ. We are to be rooted and built up in Christ in the same way that he received, in the same way that we received him in the first place. We received Christ by faith, through grace, by grace, through faith. And we come to this table weekly in order to do the same thing. It's not to start over, but what it means to, this is what it means to continue. This is what it means to abide. To abide in Christ by receiving him, and to receive him as he is offered, in full accordance with his word. So come, welcome to Christ. This is Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.